Well, good morning, everybody. It is so, so good to see all of you here today and everybody on, watching online. Thank you so much for joining us this morning as we finish out our series entitled Help My Unbelief. And, and, and I hope over the course of the last few weeks, if you've joined us throughout this series, that, 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 that it's been beneficial for you, that maybe it's given you some, some, some comfort or, or some kind of, you know, what to do in case you find yourself in a season or in a moment of doubt. But if you go back to the very, very beginning, the reason why we wanted to, to spend some time going through this series was really simple. And it's because we know that life is hard. We know that life at times, it doesn't make sense. That life at times, it just, it, it brings out a lot of questions that we don't really have answers to. That at life at times can feel like you're walking through a field that is full of landmines, just waiting to explode. And whenever you, you know, whenever you come upon one of these landmines and it, it goes off, it, it can kind of catch you by surprise and it can lead you to asking these questions, again, that you just may not have the answers to. And I think that there's a reason for this, and I think that the reason is honestly because that's exactly how the evil one would want it to be. The evil one's number one mission in your life, I, th I think one of the biggest misconceptions that we have about how Satan wants to operate in our lives is we think that he wants to destroy our faith in an instant. But instead, I think what he's really wanting to do is just kind of methodically chip away at the confidence that we have in Jesus. You know, it, 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 it's interesting to me that for years there, there have been statistics that, that have been put out that, that talk about why somebody begins going to a new church, why somebody would start going to a new church. And, and there are always a handful of reasons, but the, the top two are generally the, the same. Reason number one is because they move from one community into a new community, and so they just need a new church. Maybe some of you have been there before. And, and, and so much of, of church growth comes from people just moving from one community into a new community. But the other one's the one that is really, really kind of fascinating to me. And the second reason is because... People are going through some sort of pain or suffering or some sort of a traumatic experience. Or whether they're just in it or whether they're just coming out of it, they go through something that they don't know how to deal with, and so then they turn to the church. And the reason that I share that with you is because the very things that drive some away from their faith are the very things that can drive others to their faith. And as we've said over the last few weeks, doubt, it is not uncommon for people of faith to experience doubt. It is not uncommon for people of faith to live with this tension of, of how do belief and unbelief coincide at the exact same time. But my biggest concern for us, my biggest concern for, for people who claim to be followers of Jesus is that our doubts can ultimately lead to guilt. Not conviction, but guilt. And if we are not careful, our guilt can ultimately lead to a foothold for the evil one. And whenever Satan gets this foothold, he just comes and he sinks in, and all of a sudden we don't view our doubts in a healthy way, and if we were able to take a step back and remove ourselves from the situation just a little bit, we would see that oftentimes we're not even looking at our doubts in a logical 
way. But again, in, in case you missed a, a, the, the past few weeks, we've, we've really talked about three kinds of doubt that people of faith often experience. The first one is an intellectual doubt, and this doubt can be tied to, to what we see happening all across the country. You know, you, you, you have teenagers who come to church, and they come to youth group, and then they, they graduate from high school, they leave the home, and they go to college, and, and whenever they go to college, all of a sudden, they slowly begin to walk away from their faith. All of a sudden, they're, they're, they're faced with these intellectuals that they greatly respect who start asking questions that they've never really asked themselves. Why do I believe in God? Why do I believe in miracles? Why do I believe in the Bible? Why do I believe in Jesus' resurrection? And without a proper response to these questions, it's easy to see how those questions can cause you to slowly move away from your faith. However, there are other people who face the exact same circumstances who, instead of walking away from their faith, they end up seeking out mentors. They end up reading books by other brilliant minds who provide you know, plenty of, of reasonable uh, uh, confidence to be able to believe, to, to believe certain things. So the first one is intellectual doubt. The second one is emotional doubt. And the majority of people that I've encountered in, in 20 years of working in the church who, who are struggling with some sort of doubt, the kind of doubt that they're struggling with is an emotional doubt. It's a doubt that, 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 that comes from your own pain, your own suffering, your own experiences. An emotional doubt will always lead to these questions. How could God allow or why would God allow whatever it is to happen? Again, they come from your personal experiences and your unmet expectations. However, as much as our, emo our emotions and our personal experiences are real and pressing, and they should never, ever, ever be ignored, we know this is true. Our own, our, our, our own um, emotions and our, our personal experiences, they tend to be very poor guides, especially when we're operating from a place of pain. But for many, for, for many people, their emotional doubt and their unmet expectations can cause them to walk away from the faith. While there are others who, going through similar circumstances, their, 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 their personal pain and their unmet expectations can lead them to a greater dependence on Jesus than they've ever known before. And then the third kind of doubt that, that we've talked about is the moral doubt. Moral doubt. And and moral doubt, honestly, if I'm just going to put it bluntly, moral doubt can often be tied to an unwillingness to surrender. The moral doubt says that if God says or if God believes that fill-in-the-blank is wrong, then I want nothing to do with God. Or if God says that fill-in-the-blank is wrong, then, 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 then God can't exist or God can't be good. And so, so often the genesis, the beginning of moral doubt comes from a stagnant faith or a compromising faith. And outside of a willingness to surrender your will and your vision of right and wrong to God's will and God's vision of right and wrong, it's really going to be difficult to move beyond your moral doubt. So all of that to say this, there will be moments in your life in our lives where we will face circumstances or have experiences that will create a tension that will lead to seasons or moments of doubt. But what we do from that point will go a long, long way in determining whether our faith will erode or whether our faith will become stronger than it's ever been. And in so many ways, this is the story of Thomas. Thomas. 
or as he's more commonly known to probably many of us, doubting Thomas. He faced circumstances and he had an experience that led him to moments of doubt. And I'm guessing for many of you, you're probably at least somewhat remotely familiar with Thomas' story. Thomas, he was one of Jesus' original 12 disciples. And we really don't learn a whole lot about Thomas whenever you read throughout the New Testament. In fact, he's only mentioned eight times. And, and out of the eight times that Thomas is mentioned in the New Testament, four of them, so half of them, come from, from whenever they just give a list of who Jesus' disciples are. But John, in his gospel, he gives us just a couple of insights in, into a little bit more of who it is that Thomas would have been. And, and the main instance that I want to bring up real quick is found in John chapter 11. And John chapter 11 is one of those incredible, incredible chapters that, that, that has one of the, the, the most famous stories in all the gospels. It's the story of Lazarus, you know, Jesus bringing Lazarus back from the dead. And so Jesus has just re received word that his friend Lazarus, he's sick, and and, and Mary and Martha, Lazarus' sisters, are like, Jesus, you have to get here. You have to come here. And Jesus kind of holds off for a little bit, but eventually he decides, okay, we're going to go. And, and, and so um, whenever, whenever he decides that they're going to go back to, to Judea, where Lazarus had lived and where Lazarus was buried, the, the disciples kind of stepped in and, and tried to get Jesus to reconsider because it wasn't very long before that Jesus was in Judea, and, 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 so, and, and many of the Jewish religious leaders, they were trying to kill Jesus in that moment. And so the disciples come to Jesus whenever he says, we're going to Judea for Lazarus. They're, they're like, hold on, Jesus, are, are you really sure about this? Like, like, do you really think that this is a good idea? I, I mean, you remember what they were wanting to do. They, they were just wanting to kill you, and so they're concerned for Jesus' safety, but they're also concerned for their own safety. But eventually Jesus says, yeah, guys, I'm completely aware of all this that's taking place, but here's the deal. We're going to go to Judea. And whenever Jesus says we're going to go to Judea, guess what? They're going to go to Judea. And, and so they end up, you know, going, uh, you know, deciding that Jesus decides for them that they're all going to go to Judea. And it's in that moment that Thomas speaks up and he says something that, that would be more accustomed to Peter in the gospel than than, than Thomas, he turns his attention to all the other disciples, and he says this in John 11, verse 16. It says, then Thomas, also known as Didymus, which literally just means twin. So Thomas was a twin. We have zero information in scripture about who his twin was or anything, but Thomas would have been a twin. Then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And so the very first thing that I want to point out to us about Thomas, because it goes completely against the reputation that he's best known for, is that Thomas lived with a deep conviction that Jesus was the Messiah, that there was something very, very, very special about Jesus. And this was a conviction that ran so deep in Thomas's life that he was willing to, to die for Jesus, but also encouraged the rest of the disciples to die for Jesus. So that's the first thing we learn, this deep-held conviction that Jesus was the Messiah to the point that he is willing to become a martyr on Jesus' behalf. But what Thomas is best known for was his response to the news that Jesus had resurrected from the dead. And I'm guessing that the majority of us in here do remember this story. 
We remember that Jesus, he was crucified on a Friday. We know through the gospel accounts that Jesus, he ended up dying and breathing his last at around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And so at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I mean, that, that, that's just kind of whenever the clock started. There was so much that had to be done in a very, very short amount of time. Because it was during the Passover and because the Sabbath was coming, all work had to be done, everything had to be done by sundown on Friday. And so once Jesus dies at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Joseph of Arimathea, he goes and he gets permission to take Jesus' body. And he, he, he gets Jesus' body, he takes Jesus' body to the tomb, he, he quickly anoints Jesus' body, he, he wraps Jesus' body in linen, and then he, gets, he buries Jesus in the tomb, in, in the rock. And all of this would have had to have been done in just a few hours. And so the Sabbath would have lasted from sundown on Friday until sunrise on Sunday. And then on sunrise, at sunrise on Sunday, some of Jesus' women followers, knowing that Jesus had not been properly anointed, knowing that he had not been properly embalmed, sunrise on Sunday, some of Jesus' female followers, they got up and they went and they purchased everything they could possibly need to be able to properly embalm Jesus' body because they loved Jesus. And the last thing that they wanted was for Jesus to be buried in a tomb in an improper way. Honestly, they just wanted to make sure that Jesus could rest in peace. But whenever they showed up to the tomb, they were surprised to find that the, 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 the tomb was empty and that Jesus, he was gone. And so they end up leaving the tomb and they rush to find the disciples and they find them huddled together, hiding behind locked doors. Many scholars, this is kind of interesting, many scholars believe that the disciples were hiding in the same upper room that the Last Supper had taken place in. And so they, they find the disciples there huddled together out of fear of the Jewish leaders. And, and the women, they come and they, they tell the disciples everything that, that they have seen, everything that they have heard. And Luke tells us in chapter 24 and verse 11 that whenever the disciples first heard the report of the women, they blew off their words as complete and total nonsense. And so, yes, Thomas is the one who gets the bad rep here. Thomas is the one who we still know who we're talking about whenever we say the words, doubting Thomas. But it was the doubting disciples just as much as it was doubting Thomas. And it wasn't until later that same evening, that, that same Easter evening, whenever once again the disciples were huddled together, hiding behind locked door out of fear of the Jewish leaders, that, that Jesus came and he appeared to them and said the words, peace be with you. And it was at that moment where the disciples saw the holes in his hands and they saw the holes in his side that the disciples believed that Jesus had really resurrected from the dead. Not before. And it's really hard to blame them. For, for, for years they had been taught about the Messiah and here's what's going to happen with the Messiah. And nothing that they had been taught followed in, fell in line with what they were experiencing with Jesus. They had completely misread the entire situation. Besides... Just a couple of days earlier, they saw Jesus murdered in the most brutal way imaginable. And for the most part, right? Dead people stay... Thank you. We're on the same page here. Dead people stay dead. But the most important, the most life-changing, the most life-giving, the most hope-filled event in human history has just taken place. Jesus has risen from the dead... 
And although Jesus had made his plans as clear as he possibly could to the disciples, they did not get it until they saw the holes in his hands and his side. However, John tells us in, in chapter 20, verse 24, he says that Thomas, the twin, one of the twelve, he was not with the disciples when Jesus and you have to read this. You have to understand this through the lens that Thomas had such a great and a deep confidence that Jesus was really the Messiah. And so I imagine that Thomas at this time, I mean, obviously there's no way that I can prove this, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if at this time, a couple of days later, Thomas, he's starting to hear these rumors about things that are taking place. He just gets up and he excuses himself. He goes out for a walk. He has to try and process everything that he's hearing. Because all that he knows is the last thing that he saw, which was Jesus dying on a tree. And so he's not there whenever Jesus shows up for one reason or another. And so whenever Thomas gets back from wherever he was, the other disciples, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas said to them, here it is, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And the word that John uses here to describe what Thomas is saying that he's going to do, he uses like this really, really aggressive word. He's basically, Thomas is basically saying like, I want to shove my hand into Jesus's side. And I don't know about you, but I can relate with Thomas here. There's been a few moments in my life to where, you know, my emotions have been worn so thin that everything becomes much more dramatic than what it actually is. I don't know how to respond in a responsible way. Everything, you know, is, is, is louder. Every, my, my, my tone is, is quicker. I, I speak without thinking a lot more often. And I think that's where Thomas finds himself right here. His hope is gone. His doubt is real. He saw Jesus die. And it's going to take something supernatural to change his mind. But right here, it's interesting because all that Thomas wants, all that Thomas wants is the exact same thing that the other disciples have already got to experience. He just wants to see the holes in Jesus' body. But the other interesting thing, kind of on the flip side, is what Thomas has available to him here right now is the exact same thing that you have available to you and I have available to me. He has the eyewitness testimony of the disciples to the resurrected Jesus. But for Thomas, it wasn't enough. And there's a really good chance that for some of you, the eyewitness testimony of the disciples to the resurrected Jesus, that's not enough for you either. And I think the reason that it's not enough for you is the exact same reason that it wasn't enough for Thomas, and that's because Thomas had yet to encounter the resurrected Jesus. And for some of us today, maybe we have yet to truly encounter the resurrected Jesus. And so in verse 26, it continues, and it says, A week later, a week later, his disciples were, were in the house again, and Thomas, this time, he was with them. And the doors were locked, and, they came, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. 
And so a week has passed. We're at a completely new Sunday, and, and I can only imagine how much Thomas's relationship with the rest of the disciples is just barely hanging on by a thread at this point. Because you know that their conversations with one another the entire week were about nothing other than the joy that they feel from, from seeing Jesus resurrected. And so every time that they begin to talk about the resurrected Jesus, you can just picture it, right? I mean, Thomas just puts his fingers in his ears. He's like, la, 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 Like, I'm not going to hear it. I don't want to hear it. I'm not going to listen to it. Until I see it, I'm not going to believe you. And the disciples, they're just getting more and more and more excited. And I mean, Thomas, probably multiple times over the course of the week, he gets out, uh, gets up and just excuses himself so he can go for a walk as the disciples sit there and celebrate in their joy. But just like the week before, Jesus shows up and he says the words, peace be with you. But the only difference is, is that this time Thomas is there. And so Jesus, he looks at Thomas and he says, hey, Thomas, put your finger here. You see my hands? Reach out your hand and put it into my side. And then I love this. But stop doubting and believe. Jesus knew the words and the thoughts of Thomas from the prior week, even though he was not physically present whenever he said them. Thomas, you want to put your finger in my hand? Here you go. You want to put your hand in my side, Thomas? You want to, like, force your hand? Here you go. But the most powerful words that Jesus speaks here are the challenge that he gives to, to, to Thomas whenever he says, Thomas, Stop doubting and believe. And I just have to wonder, how many of us today would Jesus give that same advice to? Church, I know you're going through a hard time. Christian, I know you're going through a hard time. I know your marriage is falling. I know that you have sickness. I know that, 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 that life just doesn't make sense, that you have more questions than you have answers, but I want you to hear me. Stop doubting and believe. And if you would translate Jesus' words here word for word, he literally says, stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. In other words, your faith, it is always becoming. Both believing and unbelieving will make a great, great impact on your life. So stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. Your faith is moving in one way or another. Stop becoming unbelieving and get on with becoming believing. And man, 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 Thomas's response to what Jesus, to, to, to the challenge of Jesus could not be any more perfect. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. You know, John, whenever he writes his gospel, he includes a lot of details that we really don't need. But it seems like there's one glaring detail that's missing right here, doesn't there? Whenever Jesus shows up and he says, Thomas, here's the holes in my hand, here's the hole in my side, we would expect Thomas to what? reach out and put his finger in the holes in his hand and to put his hand in the side of Jesus, right? But John doesn't say that took place. Maybe it's just a detail that he didn't think was necessary, but I think it's more likely it's because Thomas didn't do it. 
I think whenever he saw the resurrected Jesus, all that he could do was make this confession to the lordship of Jesus, my Lord and my God. And the reason I believe that is this, is because our doubts will disappear in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Our doubts can disappear in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Thomas, he didn't sit there and ask questions. He didn't sit there and try to make sense of every little detail. Instead, he surrendered his doubts. He surrendered his questions because our doubts can disappear in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And can I be honest with you today? I hope this is okay, and I hope some of you don't lose like a massive amount of respect for me right here, but I just want to be honest with you. I am not a Christian because I can explain everything, right? Maybe you can. I am not a Christian because I understand everything. I am not even a Christian because what I want to be (laughs) always lines up with how God made it to be. But I am a Christian because of the insurmountable evidence and the eyewitness testimony of the disciples that Jesus really rose from the dead. That's it. That's my apologetic. That is what everything that I have stands upon. Because Jesus resurrected from the dead... I am to surrender my will and my wants and my desires and my version of right and wrong to Jesus and his will and his wants and his desires and his version of right and wrong. Because of the resurrection, Jesus is more than my Savior. He is more than my ticket to heaven. But he is the Lord and the King of my life. And it is definitely not because I understand everything. But listen, but my doubts can disappear in the presence of a resurrected Jesus. Sometimes it's a slow disappearing. But my doubts can disappear in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. And so as we close out this series, I, I just want to share something as practical as I possibly can. I know in all likelihood we all are going to have doubts and questions from time to time, but, but how we respond will be the difference in our faith eroding and our faith becoming stronger than it's ever been. And so when we are struggling to believe, here are five things that I think we can do. Number one, we can name our doubts. Name our doubts. What is your doubt? Is it something that's truly detrimental to following Jesus? In other words, is it, is it something like you're, you're doubting the existence of God, or is it something like you're, you're doubting the resurrection of Jesus, or is it something else? Is it something regarding Christian doctrine that is not essential to salvation? Or is it just a specific belief or, 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 or a certain view that a certain church or denomination holds? Identifying your doubts will help you keep your doubts in perspective. The second thing is identify the source of your doubts. 
Not every doubt is an intellectual doubt. And in fact, the majority of doubts are not intellectual doubts. The majority of doubts are emotional doubts that come from negative experiences and unmet expectations. The other place where a lot of our doubts come from is, is whenever, we allowed un, whenever, whenever we allow unconfessed sin to stay in our life, whenever we allow our faith to become stagnant, we are just providing the evil one a breeding ground for doubts to occur in our lives. And so identifying the source of our doubts is so important if we ever plan on truly facing our doubts. The third thing that I want to encourage you with is to doubt your doubts. Good doubters continue to ask questions of their questions. They continue to doubt their doubts. They are skeptical of their skepticism. But too many doubters stop doubting too soon. And I think the reason we do this is because we assume that our doubts are completely founded and justified. When in fact, if we would just be a little skeptical of our doubts, we would realize that our doubts are often not nearly as deep as we think they are. And number four, honestly seek answers. Honestly seek answers. There are very few questions that haven't been wrestled with in a good book. Additionally, surround yourself with a community who can, with grace and truth, help you as you struggle through doubt. Because good doubters never walk through doubt alone. And then number five, use the lens of the resurrection. I am not a Christian because I can explain everything. I am not a Christian because I understand everything. I am not a Christian because what I want to be always lines up with how God made it to be. But I am a Christian because of the insurmountable evidence that Jesus resurrected from the dead. And I believe that this is all so, so important because our doubts can disappear in the presence of the resurrected Jesus. Will you pray with me this morning? Father in heaven, I thank you for today. And God, I just pray right now that, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear from you, to be moved by you. God, I am just so grateful for the hope that we have in you. And Jesus, I pray today that as we as we continue to make our way through life, some, you know, maybe some of us are in a really, really good spot. Maybe some of us are experiencing so much pain that's causing so many questions. Father, I pray that we can view it all in its proper context, that we don't make things more important than what's truly more important. So Jesus, I pray that, that, that you will go before us and that we will be able to live in the hope that only you can provide, the hope that can only come from your resurrection from the dead. And so, Father, we thank you. And Jesus, we love you. And it's your name we pray. Amen.